Well, for the last time, would you turn to Romans 12? This has been where we have been turning since the very first Sunday of 2024 as we've been walking through the book of Romans. And as you are turning to Romans 12, I'll remind you that where we left off last week in the first part of what we're looking at here in verses 14 through 21 had to do with the gospel's impact on the Christian and how that profoundly influences your relationships. That the Christian is finally capable of producing the character of God in their relationships, the characters, the characteristics that you see there in Galatians chapter 5 from the Spirit within you coming there out of you. The fruit of the Spirit is described in Galatians 5. They're in the life of the believer affecting how we relate to all of the people that the Lord has sovereignly placed around us. Now, as you're thinking back to that from Romans chapter 12, I just want you to consider relationships in general and maybe how it is that what we see around us isn't exactly normal when you think about a biblical understanding of relationships. Of course, human relationships of any kind came into existence when man was created in Genesis chapter 1. A relationship there that first existed between the first man and his God, the next relationship that we see is between Adam and Eve, man and man. But remember that by the time you get to Genesis chapter 4, something seems to have already gone terribly wrong because by the time you get to Genesis 4, brother is killing brother. And by the time you get to Genesis 6, there are such corrupt relationships that by the time you get to Genesis 7, the Lord has flooded the earth in judgment. But even then, as the waters have subsided and the ground is still wet, you find that relationship problems continue to exist because you get to the end of Genesis chapter 9 and there's problems between Noah and his sons. And then all that happens is this seems to snowball. This problem's ever present in the chapters that follow between Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. Then you have the problem between brothers once again, Jacob and Esau. And by the time you get to Genesis 37, oh, guess what? You have brothers selling off their brother Joseph and treating him as though he's dead. What happened between man's creation and man killing man is Genesis 3. And sin entered the world with far-reaching consequences that impacted everything in creation as it extensively reached out and touched and stained and polluted everything, including your relationships, man's relationships with other men. Satan entered into the garden bringing sin and death, destroying man's relationship with God, man's relationship with each other. But remember there in Genesis 3 at the same time comes the promise from God that he would send the seed of the woman to bruise the head of the serpent. And as vast and far-reaching as the sin that entered the world there in Genesis chapter 3, so is the impact of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. And we see that taking place in the gospel. How extensive is the outcome of the work of Christ on the cross. Well, the cross has even altered the Christian's relationships. 
Alter the relationships with those that you have within the church and those that you have outside of the church. The gospel has extensively affected relationships. That's what Paul's describing in the verses that we have before us there in chapter 12. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, one of the challenges of verse-by-verse exposition is that some can drop in for one sermon and hear a passage like that and think, oh, this is isolated from everything else that's come before this. That what we just read there in those verses 14 through 21 are really helpful principles for you in order to be able to live a happy life. But nothing could be further from the truth. And simply nothing could be more impossible for you to follow than to follow what Paul is instructing there. We have to understand what this is that we just read. Those are divinely inspired instructions from an apostle. And they are only to those who have been born again, being freed from the sin that once prevented you from walking in the way in which Scripture is calling you to follow Jesus right here. All of this, this section right here, comes in this last part of Romans chapter 12 that we've considered under that heading, a life transformed by the gospel, that the gospel has done something profound that's affected everything about you. It started there in verse 1 that you present yourself as a sacrifice to God. This had to do with your life. Then it was that you prove the will of God. This has to do with your will. Then that you prioritize the people of God, the church. This has to do with your spiritual family. Then that you would practice the gifts of God. This is your service. Then that you would project the love of God. This has to do with your affections. And here that you would produce the character of God. This has to do with your relationships. The only reason that you can respond to what Paul is saying here in verses 14 through 21 would be because of what the gospel has done. Verses 14 through 21 Paul has shifted his focus. He's now considering the gospel's impact on relationships and how a Christian behaves within relationships to other Christians, including how you behave in your relationships with those people who bring persecution to you. The love of God from verses 9 through 13 that we considered a couple weeks ago, it continues to govern what he is saying here about how it is that we behave, but he not only considers the actions of love and the way that it behaves amongst Christians as it did there, but how that love causes us to behave amongst all sorts of people. In verse 17 through 21, it's how the Christian relates and responds to those who are outside of the church, who are really your enemies and opposing you and hating you and not making your life very wonderful. 
Christian, he has here that you are, you are no longer a slave to sin as men have been since Genesis chapter 3. You're no longer that person who's chained to produce the deeds of the flesh, being anger and disputes and dissension and factions and envy. And Paul is showing you as a Christian that the man on the cross, his work has actually freed you. His blood has washed you. His body has ransomed you. His death has atoned for your sin and his resurrection has proved that all of this has been accepted by his father so that the sin that once has impacted everything about you is no longer impacting everything about you. The death of Christ is affecting you. The gospel is making an impact. The gospel has altered the Christian's relationships with those in the church and those opposing the church, relationships with other Christians and those who are not Christians at all. How do you, Christian, how do you behave then, having been impacted by the gospel, towards those that God has providentially put in your life? Quit telling me, oh, that's just, I wish they'd just disappear. They're there for a reason. They've been providentially put in your life. How do you behave towards them? How do you behave towards them that are both Christian and those that hate you because you are a Christian? Well, this is where we started last week. In verse 14 through 21, Paul gives you eight principles demonstrating love that governs our relationships and models Christ who died so that you could be free to follow where Paul is shepherding you here in these verses. In last week, we'll briefly look at the three that we looked at last week. Last week, principle number one was this, that you bless those who persecute. It's there in verse 14. And he was telling us that a Christian has a most unusual response to those who seek to harm you, a response that's rooted again in the gospel's impact on your life. Look at verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse So remember what we talked about, that you are those people as a Christian who have defected from the world, and you've joined the world's enemy in a sense, namely Christ, and as a result of that, you are now their enemy. They will hate you, and they will come and bring misery to you. And in response to all of that, what does Paul say you're to do? You're to bless them. You're to call upon God to bestow his favor upon those who are bringing misery to you. In such a way, you're to sound like the God-man who was on the cross who died for you, who from the cross said those words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now, friend, if you're here this morning and you're lost, and you're just demanding proof that the gospel is real and that it is the power of God into salvation, you'll find proof in the saved man. You'll find proof in the saved man who doesn't curse those who hate him, but genuinely blesses them instead, calling his favor, the favor of God upon them, and maybe even you. This is not a weakness, not at all. Don't look at this as a weakness. This is a supernatural work of Christ, and it evidences the Spirit of God producing fruit in his life so that he can bless and not curse. Last week, the second principle, we join those who rejoice and weep. Join those who rejoice and weep. The gospel's impact on the Christian heart is also evident in the relationships that exist between Christians 
and how within those relationships we join in one another's joys and sorrows. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We half the sorrows, double the joys of one another. And this, remember, this isn't a command that he's giving us. No, 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 this is a privilege belonging to you because you have been made part of the family. It's a joy to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Number three, last week, we regard those who are lowly. A Christian has a humble mind toward others who are in Christ, a common mind, not a high mind. That's what he's warning against here. Not a high mind that rises above everyone so that you overlook all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. No, you have a common mind resulting in a redeemed community of people who genuinely care for one another. Verse 6, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. What we looked at that the gospel has impacted our thinking about how we think about one another. It demonstrates a Christ-like humility. We considered that quote by Thomas Watson that was helpful. Humility looks upon another's virtues and its own infirmities. It goes, why would you associate with me? That was last week. Now, would you look at verse 17 here? The remaining principles before us this morning, they all have to do with our interaction with those who are not Christians. Paul uses the word, look at verse 17 and 21, evil, and the word enemy in verse 20 for a reason. Now, I also want, because I know I'm going to get a couple of questions about this, I want to preface what he's saying here by noting this is your relationship as an individual believer to other individuals who do evil. This is not the state's relationship with those people who do evil. That comes in Romans chapter 13. So what follows here in verse 17 are the remainder of the biblical principles demonstrating love, governing relationships, and modeling our Savior. And they have to do with those who bring evil to you because you're a Christian. This is about the Christian's relationship with their enemy. Principle four then, we behave godly. Behave godly toward those who mistreat. Behave godly toward those who mistreat. Paul addresses here how the Christian engages those who seek to do evil, and he does this in two ways, as we've come to see him do in numerous times. He does this negatively, and he does this positively. Look at verse 17. It starts with a negative. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Positive, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Helpfully, I think the, the LSB translates this as never paying back evil for evil to anyone respecting what is good in the sight of all men. So he's instructing you here against retribution and against revenge that someone has hurt you and the way that you would respond to them is that you would pay back blow for blow. You pay back what you have suffered. And as tempting as revenge is, verse 17 says, the Christian never does this to anyone, whoever it may be. Look at that word, anyone, without exception. What you do positively is found there, respect what is right in the sight of all men. That word respect can mean to think beforehand, which is completely different than revenge that quickly plots about how I'm going to bring suffering to you because of what you've done to me. 
To respect then is to act in a disciplined and principled way, having a high regard for what is right, having an understanding of what is right. It's the very opposite, really, of paying back evil for evil. This is honoring what is good. That's your response. So follow Paul. The Christian here does not retaliate. You do not seek revenge. To do that would be contrary in undermining Romans 12, verse 14, where he instructed us what we've read. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. But watch what he's doing in verse 17. The idea is even more refined than verse 14. In verse 14, it's that you would not call upon the divine to inflict a supernatural harm to the one who persecutes you. That you would not call upon the divine to curse someone. Verse 17, it's that the harm's not coming from you either. You're neither calling for it or inflicting it. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, what about protecting my family or what about protecting my church from evil? This isn't about defending and protecting those you love. This is about revenge and vengeance and engaging evil, seeking the blood of those who have brought evil to you, that you don't set your heart and your mind to doing what's wicked and repay them with what is wicked. Proverbs says it this way, Proverbs 20, verse 22 Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. It's in line with Paul there in 1 Thessalonians 5.22 again where he says, you, Christian, abstain from every form of evil. It's in line with Proverbs 24.29. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. And again, this is not weakness, but this is strength, this is maturity, this is Belief, this is faith in the scriptures, all displaying itself here in the godly man. And when you see this, if, if you have eyes that can see this, it's beautiful and profound. And if it's absent, just consider, if that's absent in some accounts, what's lost with it being absent? Can you imagine what would have been lost in the account of Job if Job's response to the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans who took everything from him If his response was to go and to find his friends and to gather them up and to go find the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and to mercilessly slaughter them. But but God's own testimony of Job, Job 1.8, is that there's no one like him on earth, blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. If then Job didn't pay back evil for evil, what then did Job do when evil came to him? Job 1, 20 and 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and he, remember, worshipped. Do you remember the words that came from his mouth? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then you remember what happens? Scripture does something there that doesn't often do in the Old Testament. It makes a comment. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Imagine what would have been lost if paying back evil for evil, like we're so tempted to do, was found in Joseph who could have directed the full power and might of Egypt to exact an 
equally brutal punishment upon his brothers to repay the evil that was done to him. And remember what he said there in Genesis 50 verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And then what does he do? Then he provides for them what would preserve their life, those who brought evil against him. And what was taking place there was this. In so doing this, he was doing what was good in the sight of all men. I think it's helpful the way Martin Lloyd-Jones says it. He said, when somebody does evil to me, I must put it into the whole context of my life as a Christian. I am not to be concerned only about myself. I am to think this through. I must not act on my instincts or my own feelings. I must not be concerned about my own reputation. What is involved here is the honor of the Christian faith. It is indeed the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the honor of God. At stake is the reputation of the family of heaven to which by the grace of God I now belong. I am a member of the body of Christ. It must never act as an independent, isolated person. He said there is a type of person who tends to boast and say, I always speak my mind. Well, you have no right to talk like that. You cannot isolate yourself in that way. If you do, others will suffer and you will bring the whole of the Christian gospel into disrepute. We must always be thinking this matter through and remembering who we are. So Christian, I just want to ask you, do you respond any differently to the evil that comes your way than the rest of the world would respond to the evil that comes their way? When you're wronged online, when you're wronged at work, when you're wronged at school, when you're wronged by your family, instead of responding blow for blow, fist for fist, word for word, in whatever way in which you can do that in order to hurt them, look at the text. Do you honor what is right in the sight of all men? Christian, this is not directing you towards being a man-pleaser, not at all. This is directing you towards being a God-pleaser. To respond because of the work of the gospel in your heart and to respond because you believe what Scripture says. This is Matthew 5.16. Letting your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your God, your Father who is in heaven. This is Colossians 4, 5, conducting yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. This is 1 Corinthians 10, doing all to the glory of God, giving no offense either to Jew or to Greek or to the church of God. This is not seeking your own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. This is 2 Corinthians 8.21, having a regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. This is what Peter's writing about in 1 Peter 2.12 when he said, keep your behavior amongst the Gentiles excellent so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. All of that is saying this to you, show 
those that are lost, the power and the influence and the glory of the gospel upon your own heart. Christian, you've been saved. And because you have been saved, you're free from envy and bitterness and anger that once enslaved you and controlled every relationship in your life. So you are free. Don't repay evil for evil, but seek after that which is good for all people. Principle 5, verse 18. Pursue peace. Pursue peace with those who are your neighbors. A life that has been transformed by the gospel goes to great lengths. Goes to great lengths intentionally and exhaustively pursuing peace with those who have been sovereignly placed into your life. If possible, look at verse 18, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, that you would be above reproach in this way in your pursuing peace and having relationships of peace. If possible is an adjective there, possible, powerful, capable, able, it's that word dunatos. If possible, so far as it depends on you, the wording there is such that this is what's coming out of you, it's contingent upon you, and what is coming out of you is being at peace, peace being the opposite of conflict or division or dissension, so that if this is within your power, if you can attain peace, you attain peace. You be at peace with all men. The power, strength, and capability that you possess has one objective, verse 18, peace with all men. All is all. The best of men, the worst of men, those who do evil, those who do good, those inside the church, those outside the church. This may come as a shock to you based on what you observe in our day and age and all around you, but it seems to be from verse 18 that the Christian is not meant to be merely an agitator in this world. Now, I suspect you're well aware of ministries of some that seem to stand in complete opposition to verse 18. And they may come along and say, well, Paul's ministry brought a significant amount of conflict and a significant amount of division. All that's true, but Paul's strategy was never to aim for conflict as a means to the end of proclaiming the gospel. Conflict was never a a tactic to be exploited for Paul. Listen to Paul's own words. 1 Corinthians 7.15, God has called us to peace. 2 Corinthians 13.11, live in peace. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. What's the third fruit of the Spirit? Peace. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He was such a man that demonstrated this and preached this that the person who wrote Hebrews that was greatly influenced by Paul, so much so that people go, did Paul write the book of Hebrews? What did the author of Hebrews say? Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men. The Christian is to be inclined towards peace, disposed towards peace with all men. What did your Savior preach? Matthew 5, 9, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The sons of God are known as peacemakers. 
But again, given the examples that surround us, you might think that a Christian is inclined towards conflict with all men. This shouldn't be the norm. That conflict would arise in every nook and cranny of the Christian life on an ongoing basis. That there are feuds and oppositions and arguments with all of those who are outside the faith or even, as you're well aware, those inside the faith. We act like this is a badge of honor in some way. That this is spiritual maturity when in fact it may be James 3.16, the selfish ambition that James is talking about that's actually an obstacle towards peace. Christian, does your interaction online for the whole world to see, does it express so far as it depends on me, I am at peace with all men? Could your evangelism where you share the good news out of love for Christ, love for people, does it proclaim as far as it depends on me, I am at peace with all men? And when you sit down and you counsel and you disciple and you ask questions with a mentor, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, and you're encouraging that person, is it in such a way that it says, as far as it depends on you, you be at peace with all men? Proverbs 12.20, deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. Are you counseling peace? I was thinking through this going, what about your teaching other people doctrine? You cage stage people that are out there. Where's peace in the way that you're sharing truths that are hard to understand, that were hard for you to understand? You're so frustrated by what people will not accept, but what about you? Are you accepting Paul's instruction here in verse 18? Now, there are two truths that have to accompany verse 18. They have to govern over verse 18. The first is this. You must never compromise truth for the sake of peace. That's not what he's asking you to do here. John Murray said it this way. We may never be at peace with sin and error. If peace means complicity with sin or error, then peace must be sacrificed. I don't think we have to belabor that. Number two, the other truth that must govern is that the reality is, and even the way this is laid out, you may never lay hold of peace with some men. You may never lay hold of peace with some men. Calvin said it this way, we're not to strive to attain the favor of men in such a way that we refuse to incur the hatred of any for the sake of Christ. Men are going to hate you, and you're going to exhaust yourself pursuing peace with them, and they're going to still hate you, and you continue to pursue peace. Those truths have to govern over here, verse 18, but they cannot be used to manipulate verse 18 in such a way that it diminishes verse 18 because what Paul is instructing is a Christ-like response that's coming from a new heart. So for a moment, you Christian, pause and call to mind that person who you don't seem to have peace with in this life. Who, if we were to have a conversation, you'd tell me about all the wonderful things that are going on in your world, how work's going well, how this is going well, you're happy in these ways, and then you pause and you say, you know, there's this one person. Maybe that's a teacher, maybe that's a sibling, maybe that's a child or a coworker, maybe that's somebody that's even here this morning that you've seen already. And you say that, you know, they treat me unfairly, and they speak to me unkindly. Would you consider verse 18 in regards to that person? Would you apply verse 18 so far as it depends on you? Be at peace with all men. 
How do you pursue that? Friend, Proverbs is helpful. Proverbs 10, 12. Have you showed love to them? And have you showed love to them again? And have you showed love to them again? And is that a love that's not contingent on the love that they've showed to you? Proverbs 12, 16. Have you refrained from anger and dishonoring them? Proverbs 15, 1. Have you used a gentle answer instead of harsh words towards them? Proverbs 17, 14, have you attempted to abandon the quarrel with them altogether? Proverbs 29, 22, have you considered for a moment that it may actually be your anger that's the obstacle to that relationship? Would you look at verse 18? Paul does not say, so much as your enemy deserves peace, give them peace. He says, so much as it depends on you, And the you that he's talking about are those who have been shown a peace you don't deserve. You've been shown a peace with God who was once your enemy, a peace that came through the blood of his son. And because now you possess a peace that you didn't deserve, you can have a peace with people in your life who certainly haven't earned it. He's going to say later, Romans 14, 19, we pursue the things which make for peace. Principle six, verse 19, leave room. Leave room for wrath towards those who bring evil. Leave room for wrath toward those who bring evil. The Christian believes something that impacts how they interact with their enemy. The Christian believes that vengeance is God's prerogative and privilege and not our prerogative and privilege. Verse 19, he says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The, the verse takes what you found there in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil, and it takes it just a little bit further. And the imperative in verse 19 is to leave or to give. And what action is that that you take towards those who've inflicted pain and suffering upon you? You must give space for, you must leave a place for the wrath of God. That your action towards those is that you give a place for the wrath of God. If you were to read this exactly as Paul wrote it in the Greek, you find that it doesn't say God's wrath. It only says this, give a place for wrath. But you know it's God's wrath based on what he says next because he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 35, where it says, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So vengeance and punishment and retribution is a right that belongs to God and not to you. He is the one who gives back. He is the one who repays. Paul is citing Deuteronomy 32. Listen to this. Vengeance is mine in retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. But he also has the same Old Testament principle in mind that vengeance does not belong to a man, Leviticus 19.18, and that you're not to take vengeance upon your neighbor, you're to love your neighbor. The same idea found found there in Romans 12, verse 17 in Proverbs 20 and Proverbs 24 that we've already considered. Would you watch where he's leading? Christian, you've not been called in this life to exact and to measure out the wrath of God on others 
It's not the gift that you have. It's not the purpose for which you've been called. This is not God's will for you. Calvin said it this way. He said, we give place for wrath. We give place to wrath. Only, he said, when we patiently wait for the proper time for our deliverance, praying in the meantime that those who now trouble us may repent and become our friends. So to give room for God's wrath is to believe that from time to time, God is so gracious that he grants repentance to people. Christian, it's the godless that have no concept of this principle that we're looking at. It's, it's just the opposite. To, to exact vengeance yourself is really the doctrine of the godless. It's a godless culture that recognizes, oh, there's an injustice taking place, and they run into the streets, and they take vengeance, and they burn down cities and overturn cars and destroy property. A society does that who has no concept of a holy God, who knows every single sin and every single wrong. They have no understanding of a righteous and just God who will repay every single deed, whether or not there is justice rendered on this earth. There will be justice rendered after this earth. A godless people cannot leave room for the wrath of God because they've rejected the very existence of God. Christian, if we don't leave room for the wrath of God, then we act like the godless. The call here is to believe God, to take Him at His word, meaning we do not take revenge, but we act in response to vengeance, all belonging to Him. Vengeance belongs to him. Again, you're not inflicting pain and you're not inflicting suffering in response to every time you've received pain and suffering, not weakness. It's not proving yourself to be without a spine. It's believing. It's just believing. Nahum 1, verses 2 and 3, that he is a jealous and avenging God, avenging and wrathful, taking vengeance on his adversaries, reserving wrath for his enemies. This is taking God at his word and believing that he's slow to anger, great in power, and that the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Holy wrath can only belong to a holy God, not you or not me. Number seven, verse 20, we care for those who are our enemies. Care for those who are your enemy. So vengeance isn't your calling, vengeance isn't your right. How do you respond then to your enemy? You respond in a profound way demonstrating goodness. Verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, here's the imperative, feed him. If he's thirsty, here's the imperative, give him a drink, you must do so. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul is citing Proverbs again here. Proverbs 25 verse 21 And as it is in Proverbs, this is the action of the godly man to your enemy in need. And here's what the point is. Revenge or doing evil or vengeance, this is not the only action that you can take towards your enemy. You're free from bitterness. You're free from anger. You're free from envy. What can you do? You're called to care for them. And Paul cites the proverb also here saying that by doing so, you will heap burning coals on their head. People interpret this two ways. I think there's a common thread. One interpretation is that you're doing good to your enemy is putting the burning pains of shame and contrition on your enemy. The other is 
that in the Old Testament, every time you saw heaping burning coals on one's head, it was often in the context of judgment, meaning that if you're doing good to your enemy doesn't lead to their repentance, then their guilt before the Lord is only increased, leading to an increased severity in judgment. What do both of those have in common? That ideally you want to see repentance, that you want your enemy to repent, to see Christ in the way that you're treating them, and to be drawn to Christ and to be drawn to salvation. Now, in our wonderful West Texas culture, you hear something that's so contrary to this that we just flippantly say that. You hear people say this. That if I saw so-and-so in the middle of nowhere on the side of the road with a flat tire, I'm not even going to slow down, right? I hope they get what they deserve. Do you want what you deserve? Verse 20 says, Christian, you do what's completely unnatural to men. This isn't some godless doctrine of karma unfolding. This is you stopping and meeting whatever need you see existing, even with those that aren't very fond of you. Watch what this is doing. Doing good, caring, that's completely opposite of measuring out vengeance. Last principle, number eight. Overcome those who do evil. Overcome those who do evil. The freedom that's found in Christ means you can overcome evil. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That sums up everything in verses 17 through 21. The word overcome can be translated to conquer. And this is an imperative. You must not be conquered by evil. No, you must conquer evil with good. So watch what he's telling you here. If you succumb to the temptation to retaliate and measure out what you deem is an appropriate measure of evil in a response of vengeance, then friend, you may think you have beat that person on this earth, but you have been conquered. You've been conquered by evil. There is a greater enemy than your human enemy. But if you were to truly conquer If you're to truly conquer what's abominable to God, then it must come by expressing in this relationship with those who do evil, by your expressing what's a delight to him coming from you. You want an example of that? Consider David. He had experienced evil at the hands of Saul, who Saul, if he couldn't take David's life, was just going to make it as absolutely miserable as he could make it. And you'll remember in 1 Samuel 24, as David and his friends are sitting in a cave one night in the middle of nowhere, who walks into the cave? There's Saul, unaware David's in there. Now the text is clear. Saul comes in to relieve himself. He puts himself in a most vulnerable position. What was David's counsel from his friends, 1 Samuel 24, 4? This is the day the Lord gives your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as seems good to you. Strike him down. Take your knife, and he is there for the taking. This must be the Lord's will for you, David. 
You remember what David does. Is it weakness that he does this? Or is it because he's spineless? David lets him go. And at a distance, he calls to Saul and he tells him what he could have done and that he had no intent whatsoever to stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed who is his enemy. And he says these words, 1 Samuel 24, 13, as the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Do you remember what happens? In that moment, Saul gets it. And evil has been overcome for a moment. What's extraordinary is this. That sort of a response, that's ordinary amongst you as Christians. That's common. That happens over and over and over again. And many missionaries have done it. If you read missionary biographies, I was reminded this week of John G. Patton. He's there in the new, he's there in, in the islands there in the Philippines. And you'll remember that he writes, he's ministering amongst savages, and that's not a very proper way to, to identify them, but that's what they were. They were wanting to take his life. And he recounts story after story of, of, of a chief amongst the tribe trying to track him down in the forest to kill him. He recounts the stories of them trying to dig up his dead wife and child in order to eat them. There, there's one account where he talks about the guy's spear is at his chest, inches from his heart, and all he's got to do is thrust it in and he's gone. And he doesn't overcome evil with evil in any sort of a way. But he continues to entrust himself to the Lord he doesn't exact revenge. He doesn't call from some foreign nation to come wipe these people out. And as a result, you see evil being overcome in a most profound way because the gospel advances and people are saved. This is a common response for Christians. I just want you to see in all this the Word of God giving something to you, Christian, directing you and shepherding you in the way in which you can go and how it is that you relate to those who don't like you very much. Behave godly, pursue peace, leave room for God's justice, care for them, overcome evil with good. All of that shows what? It's like the aroma of the gospel coming from your life. It has made an impact. There's a change that's taken place. Christian, it could be really easy to get up from here in just a moment, leave the church, and leave all of that at the church. Don't leave that at the church. Follow the big picture of the book. Genesis 1-2 gave you the creation of people in relationships existing. Genesis 3 gave you the event impacting relationships. Genesis 4 and following showed us examples of sin on all these relationships. The Gospels give you the seed of the woman, and the Gospels show you His work on the cross, and Romans is showing you how His work on the cross impacts even your relationships. And you get to the end of the book in Revelation, and it shows you the hope that's ahead of you. What's that hope from Re Revelation 22? Man is again with his God and amongst each other, Revelation 22, 3, there will no longer be any curse. What Paul is giving you here in Romans 12 is a preview of that kingdom, 
a kingdom whose citizens are on this earth and who live together in this way. Romans is showing us that Christians can live amongst one another in a hostile world and respond as those who have been freed from the curse. The gospel has done this. The gospel has profoundly altered your relationships and it's done so revealing the glory of God. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the book of Romans and it's showing us very clearly the gospel's incredible power upon our life that the entirety of our life is changed. Is sin went forth from the garden in Genesis chapter 3, extensively affecting everything. So has the gospel done a contrary work in the life of the Christian. Everything has been affected, and we are free. Father, I pray that as a church, our lives would demonstrate being free from anger and envy and greed and bitterness and dissension and all of the deeds of the flesh. And I pray, Father, for the lost that would be hearing my voice this morning, seeing the text before them, so frustrated by never being able to be free from the flesh that just is directing them in envy and dissension and anger. Lord, would you give them a path, the direction forward? Would you illuminate to them? Would you change their hearts Would you show them Christ who offers freedom? Not that any of us are perfect in any sort of a way as Christians, but we are truly free. We can be led down this path in which Paul is leading us, and all of it shows the powerful work of the gospel. So, Father, we ask that you would deal with hearts this morning because we want our relationships with those that are frankly bringing evil to us and being our enemy We want them to be impacted by the gospel because we want repentance. We pray for saving faith. We pray for the work of the cross to be impacted upon their heart and that all this be to the glory of your great name. Christ's name, amen.